Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. But if you've been around the traps a while, you would have heard us talk about the My Millennial Daily podcast. That podcast used to be on Spotify only, but now it's on all platforms. It's no longer exclusive. But this episode today is never heard before unreleased episodes of My Millennial Daily. That's right. So basically what happened was, We changed the strategy with what we're doing with My Millennial Daily. We're not using, quote unquote, dedicated content for that podcast. What we're doing is just doing clips from a heap of different podcasts that we do. So if you only really care about 10-minute daily chat, well, you can listen to the daily podcast. If you listen to every podcast in its entirety, you don't need to listen to My Millennial Daily. Uh, It's not for everyone. It is for some people. But today, we're just doing a mashup of unreleased my Millennial Daily episodes with John, Shell, and myself. But we can't do these Tuesday episodes without the Sharesies platform. Now, get this. It's a new feature. Not every platform has this feature. That's why I like it. You can now turn your stroll through the supermarket into a scroll through the share market with roundups suited to you. Simply link your bank account to the Sharesies platform and set up Roundup and start rounding up extra dollars and cents from your daily spend to hit your investing goals sooner. Turn your spending habit into an investing one today. Sign up to the Sharesies platform using the exclusive promo code MMM to get $10 added to your account. All investing involves risks, T's and C's and fees apply. Hey everyone, it's Glenn James here. This is My Millennial Money with Shell and John. Let's go. Maybe you've stumbled across this podcast and you're thinking, what the heck? I'm new to all this and I'm really excited about investing, growing my wealth, getting everything in line. So this goes out to you. You're new to personal finance. What can you do to make sense of it all? You're listening to My Millennial Daily. This is Glenn James. I'm with Shell Johnson and John Pigeon. Talia from the My Millennial Money Facebook community has said, Hi all, I'm a new listener currently binging every episode and loving the podcast. I was just wondering where you would recommend I go, what to read, research, to learn the basics for investing. I'm brand new. I have no knowledge of all things tax index inflation, but I'm a fast learner, very skeptical. I don't rush into anything. I'm just after the 101 of investing before I even think where to put my dollars and taking the first step. Thanks all. Love the group and the potty. Yeah. So John, if someone, you know, walked into your office and they're like, oh, I want a clarity call. I want to get started with investing or doing more with my money and my life. What are you telling that person? First of all, I think understanding the risk profile, um, she said that she's very skeptical. So I would elaborate on that and say, well, what does that mean to you? Like doesn't rush into everything. So the risk profile seems to be reasonably low. However, we've got a house with a, with a mortgage. So there's some risk attached to that. Um, understanding that first and foremost, and then saying, well, is it generally two types of assets, shares, or a property. So which one excites you more? Which one do you understand more? Which one would you take interest in learning? She says she's a fast learner. So based on that is as to where you would probably head that conversation around um, if it's property, right, okay, so this is how it could play out. Equity in your own home, um, savings, how long until we pay off our mortgage and then what that strategy might look like for that first property and then a long-term plan to know, well, okay, I'm 32. We might want to pull the pin at 60, say. Um, there's 30 years that your portfolio can do its thing. Uh, what do we want to achieve over the next 10 years in order to achieve that? So that that would be the broad brushstrokes of how we'd address that. Can I ask, 
I like how she said she's brand new. She has no knowledge of all things investing. Yes. Glenn, what would be your recommendations on on where to start with reading and research? Yeah, so I actually, in the Facebook group, I replied to her and I said, let me send you a copy of my book, Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested, because I wrote that book exactly for Talia, Mm. someone who has a standing start. I want to get things happening. So we'll put a link in the show notes, my book, Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested. I'll take you through from the ground up everything that you need to do to get your financial life heading in the right direction. But what I'd probably first say is, and there was actually a fair bit more in the question, but we we just got Shell to cut it um, down and not read all the background. Um, Look, there's a lot going on in her life. And I think what I would really encourage you to do, Talia, is sit down with your husband and talk about values and lifestyle and what we want our life to look like. Because when you're in a relationship and there's two pots of money coming in, I just, you know, in all the coaching I've done with people, I would just really encourage you to be on, if you can't get on the same page, at least understand what page the other person is on. So you're aware of what page they're on. And then what I'd probably look at is any basis for long-term investing whether it is property or shares, is having a really sound cash flow and money management system. So what I'd probably say Talia is, and she did mention that one of her goals was to get some kids' future planning going on and putting some money aside for her kids, which is awesome. But I want you to find out first and foremost, in terms of investing, how much money do you have legitimately left over each month after your short-term goals that you can commit to the future. Or what you can do the other way, build your budget saying, okay, this is the money that we've got paid. We're carving off 10% and investing that. Forget what we're investing it in yet, but we are building our financial life around 90% of our take-home income. Then what we need to do is work out, well, that money each month that we want to put towards the future, how are we going to invest that? And then that's when the education and understanding comes in. You might not be interested at all in buying an investment property. So we rule that out. So we go, okay, well, we're going to cash flow our investments because you really can't cash flow property. You got one transaction done. So cash flowing our investing could be, okay, well, we've got X amount a month that we want to put away for the future. Are we putting some in super? Are we putting some in our own name? Are we putting some in a kid's account? But first, what I want you to do is understand the concepts of the investing terminologies. And my book will really help you with that. One free kick that anyone can do to learn more about investing, that is to call your super fund. Because if you've ever worked, you've got a superannuation fund. If you've ever worked, you're currently a long-term investor. And you pay the super fund fees to manage your money. So you can call the fund and say, hey, can you talk me through my investment options and explain how it works? And that there is like a free mini consult of education of the super fund saying, well, you've got 25% in Australian shares. Oh, okay. What shares are they? And they'll say, well, if you look at this, we'll show you what we invest in under the hood. So that will start to let you understand about how the investing world works and it's low cost. Now, What I want to finish on is you talked in your essay, (laughs) it was a long context background thing, about you're currently studying, you're on topic nine of 12 in your master's. Shell, career is, I believe, the biggest investment anyone can ever make in themselves. So what are, you, are we finishing this or going, oh, it was the wrong idea and scrapping it? Yeah, because she's on topic nine of 12. Should she call it a day or press on with her master's? Talia, do the master's. You've already spent a crap load of money on that. Mm. You've got three more subjects to go. Do not stop. Do not ditch it. You could press pause and defer for like 12 months, but please, you've already invested so much in that and your master's will help you get higher income. So I want you to finish that. And the higher you go in your study, the more likely you are to increase your income, which again will help you with your investments. So as Glenn mentioned, sort your career out. That's the best way to make more money 
and therefore be able to have more money to spend on your investments. Yeah, absolutely. John, any final comments on a beginner and where to get started? Look, I think she's putting her hand up. That's the first start, isn't it? It's like, okay, where do I, where do I start? I don't think she's at starting point because she's already got assets. We've talked about super, you've got your own home, etc. It's just anything and everything. Uh, it builds a shield of armor to, to see what to look out for. Um, it, it's just podcasts, it's reading, it's just sinking your teeth into anything and everything. And mm. then you start to to weed out anything that you think is is uh, is going to be volatile, and then make some firm decisions. Yeah, and strictly speaking, on the quote unquote investing side, the micro investing apps you can download a micro investing app and invest five dollars, mm. and understand that it's a low cost. You don't need to be skeptical about losing five or ten dollars, mm. but you can just use that to help learn, understand what to invest in. Uh, there is another podcast called My Millennial Investor. Uh, that's also on Spotify that we provide here and promote here. So keep in the Facebook group, keep learning, keep asking questions. And I'd really encourage you to try and get your husband on the same page, if not both understand what page you're on. Thanks for listening to my Millennial Daily. Do you own a home and you're thinking about doing a renovation or maybe you've done a renovation and thought, holy crap, have I paid too much for this renovation? Has it been overkill? Have I overcapitalized for the house that I'm living in or the street or the suburb? Let's thrash this out in more detail. I'm John Pigeon and you're listening to My Millennial Daily. Shell, hit me with it. Okay, John, here's the question. How do I know if I'm overcapitalizing? I've just done a recent renovation to our property and now we want to get a pool. Will I be spending too much or do I need to scale back? Mm. And it's such a common one, isn't it? And uh, and hopefully we're asking ourselves this question before we do it, not after we've done it. Because once we've done it, yes, it's too late, isn't it? So there's so many factors that we need to take into account here and, and in no particular order. A lot of the time we're doing a renovation or an extension on our home that we live in for lifestyle purposes. And that may be we're having an extra child or we want a bigger kitchen or we want a a back deck or we want a pool for the kids to swim in because now we've got kids, whereas five years ago we didn't have them. So it's generally a lifestyle choice that brings us to the point where we want to go and extend or, or do a renovation on our own home. Now, the lifestyle choice is purely emotion, isn't it? it it's, uh, it's touching our heartstrings. It's, it's giving us hopefully contentment in our life that what the house that we come home to each day is the house that we enjoy and then we can bring our, our family up in if we're having kids. So when it's working with emotion, it's very easy to say when at the planning stage, oh, we're going to extend this by two metres, but if we do it by five metres, we'll get an extra uh, room for for a spa or a back deck or something, whatever it is, but it's going to be an emotional thing, which is a concern for the purse strings. So how do you work out, is it like a dollar figure that you work out, oh, once I cross over this threshold, I'm overcapitalizing? How do you figure that out? Because for me, Mm. we would love eventually to put a pool in. We've got our home where we're going to probably live for the next, you know, 12 years or through primary school for our kids. But I kind of, that's been what has held us back of going, well, would we be overspending? But I don't really know what that figure is. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a really good question. And there's, again, so many aspects to this. First thing I would start with is, is the pool going to increase or decrease the value of my property? Right. And, and a pool is a bit of a 50-50. Some people like them, some people don't when we sell the property. Uh, but I would generally say that it's not going to harm the value of your property by putting a pool in or most renovations are, are, not, are going to increase the value of your property, not decrease it. So that, that's the first part. The second part is how much will the banks lend me? Right. How much money can I get or, or am I using my own cash so that we don't need the banks? That's fine. But how much money can I lend if we're lending money? And that gives us a ceiling to say, well, we can't go over that physically because we just can't get any more money than that. And then third part of it is, 
what will the renovation cost? What will the pool cost? And that's when we go and get our two or three quotes from, from different companies. And, and then we hit a figure to say, right, this is how much it's going to cost to put that pool in. This is what the repayments will now be in our daily life. Can we afford that? And are we comfortable with those repayments? And do you, John, with your clients, do you look at, okay, well, how much have you already spent? What is the property's worth in this area? And if you spend this extra 60 grand on a pool, for example, that's going to kind of start to creep up over the values of properties in that particular street or location. Is that what you're kind of looking for to benchmark? Yeah, totally. And and we do clarity calls on this topic exactly all the time. So if uh, we'll put the link in the show notes for that, if you've got a roadblock of any description regarding property, but absolutely we do that, Shell. So we get an understanding of what the median house price is in our suburb and what's the value of our property right now before we've done the improvements, right? Then we might get some precedence to say, well, this house up here is very similar in size. It's also got a pool what has that sold for or has there been any recent sales? And what you can do there is maybe go and chat to a, a few real estate agents to say, look, thinking about putting a pool in, has any property sold in my area that has got a pool? And what was the buyer sentiment like? Did they like the pool? Did they not like the pool? So it's really a a financial decision there as well as an emotional decision because if we just purely leave it up to emotion, we're going to do it 99% of the time, aren't we? So it's understanding how does my house look from a value point of view in my suburb and then if I do this renovation, uh, what will that push the value to? And understanding the median price, let's say the median house price shell in your area is 500000 right? the value of your property is 600000 right? So it's higher than the average in the suburb. If I go and spend another $200,000 on a renovation, right, it, which would probably be a bit more than a pool, uh, that's going to push it up to 800000 of value. Now, that actually might be the most expensive house in the suburb now. Now, from an ego point of view, that might be fantastic. You might be fist pumping and saying, well, we've got the most expensive house in the suburb. But from a resale point of view, no one's ever bought a property for 800000 in that suburb. So that's actually now a concern. You need to be the pioneer of that suburb from a price point of view if you were to sell that property. Oh, that's such good advice. I'm really interested in that of going, okay, there is the ego. And I think you're right. Like when we make these decisions – there's both ego and emotion. I'd love to know when you're making property decisions, how do you take emotion and ego out of it? Mm. Shall we talk about the E word all the time, emotion, and it, it rules our lives. So we need to counteract it with some facts, some research, some financial information that, that might deter us from making that emotional decision. How long do we see ourselves living in this particular house or suburb? Now, shall your example of, right, I'm going to put a pool in, how long am I kids going to enjoy that pool before we sell it and move to another suburb or another region? And if it's only going to be, well, we're only going to live here two or three years, I would be thinking twice about doing the renovation or the improvement altogether. Right. But if we can see this as our ideal location and it's our ideal street, um, it's just not our ideal home at the moment, but with this renovation, we're going to turn it into our ideal home and we can see ourselves living here for the next 10, 15, 20 years, then that has a lot more positivity to it about completing the renovation if we've factored all these things in that I spoke about. So understand how long you can see yourselves living there. And if it's a long-term thing, then we need to um, take the next step and, and get some costings. Love it. Let's round this out. We need to think about lifestyle, but not get too wrapped up in emotion. We need to think about how much the banks will lend us and the cost and the repayments that's going to, to now be in our life and, and will that hamper our lifestyle. We need to think about how long we're going to live in the property long-term. Is If it's short-term or long-term, that may uh, sway us either either way. And we need to understand the, the value of the property in our street, in our suburb. Is it the worst house, best street, or is it the best house, worst street? That can help us make a non-emotional decision. I'm John Pigeon. You've been listening to My Millennial Daily.
buying and selling homes, most homes that are bought and sold, they're not brand new homes. They've been around for a long time. The questioner here asks, selling a house with a dodgy deck. You're listening to my Millennial Daily. We're going to chat about it right now. Okay. Joel has asked the question, my house is currently for sale and the solicitor has added a clause in my sale contract, specifically mentioning a timber deck, which I built that does not have council approval. Is this something that has to be included in the contract? I'd rather not wave red flags around for potential buyers. So I read that that his own solicitor has put that in the contract. So John, just from a practical point of view, like how did the solicitor know there was a deck or did they look at Google Maps or yeah. has the solicitor asked Joel like, oh, do, have you done any renovations because mm. we've got the current council thing or whatever, like how yeah, do we get here? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer as to how that specific solicitor has found out about it, but uh, I think cutting to the chase on that, I think it needs to be in the contract uh, because to me, something that's not approved, anything worth their salt is going to pick that up anyway. That's right. So it will come out in the wash, so why hide it? Yeah, and and like a building and pest inspection will pick it up. Um, any Even just generally someone with the naked eye that's, that frequently visits properties will see, okay, this um, there's no hand railing or it's mm. – um, yeah, it looks. It's lopsided. It's like <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually. It's not actually finished, or like something's going to be amiss. But yeah, I think it uh, it may come back to haunt you, Joel, if if you don't have it in there. Mm. The red flags around potential buyers. Yeah, I think it's worse if it's not in there and someone says, well, hang on, what's going on with this deck? Oh, yeah, actually, that's not approved. All right, so what else are you hiding? Yeah, and the whole thing is like if they did the contract and it didn't mention the deck and then what happened would be, you know, there's a Peston building and someone's picked up that there's a dodgy deck, I reckon there's a higher chance of them saying that deck's dodgy, we want the contract altered or we want to a cheaper price. Yeah. Now, that whole quote-unquote cheaper price might not come up as fast or as savage if it's already out in the open anyway, so it's not That's a surprise. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, the new buyer might say, well, look, I don't even want that deck there anyway. Mm. I'm going to remove it, so it's not even an issue. Um, like it's not council approved, but it can quickly become council approved, right? So it the heat of the market is also a, a factor in all of this. If you've got it in the contract and there's 15 people to your first open home and and 10 of them have taken contracts and then you've got five offers. Yeah, whatever. There's not going to be an issue for you. And job. the practicalities, if you have a deck that isn't approved or a shed on the property that isn't approved, like there'd be so much crap on properties that isn't approved, right? The difference is... There's a difference if you build a second story addition that isn't approved, like that's some big capital works and the neighbours might go, oh, what the hell? And the council might come and audit and make you reverse it and take it down. The chances of the council knocking on the door and saying, can we see this deck or whatever, unless there's been a complaint from a neighbour, unless there's, I don't know, like the chances of it actually being mission critical to the sale is very low. I can't speak to the liability factor. I would imagine if the current owner, Joel, or the new owner has this deck and there is an accident on there, I would go out on a limb to say the public liability won't cover it because you've got a deck that isn't legal. Yeah, especially if your insurance policy, when you first took it out, asked that question. Yeah, are there any any unimproved... Yeah, uh, so it is a can of worms. So in terms of, you know, back to Joel's question, yes, it needs to be in the contract. So when we were first looking for our first home, we put an offer in on a house that had a hole downstairs that wasn't council approved. It was a beautiful new home. It was a builder who owned it and he built a second floor, like a lower floor, didn't get council approval And so the price of the property was really low because it had all these complications with it of like, it was like a brand new house. Right. And it was, we were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But then there was this really complicated factor. We put an offer in 
And all of that council stuff ended up causing all these problems. Have you guys seen stuff like that where there is something that they've done that isn't acceptable, but it lowers the actual price of the property? Well, I think it would go to the fact that if there was something that was significant, for example, there's an older property, it might be an acreage or something like that, and they've, you know, can't really see it from the street view and someone has built a second wing on the property and they're like, well, it's a four bedroom. Well, it's not, it's a three bedroom because that whole wing, Uncle David did it, who's a freaking truck driver by day and, you know, not a builder by night. Do you think, John, it goes back to what you said, the market? Like if it's a hot market, it doesn't matter, things are going to sell. Generally speaking, absolutely. I think what Joel's raised there is is so common. I, I wouldn't want to put numbers on it, but you hear of non-approved uh, renovations, improvements all the time. Some of them are legal, some of them are not legal, with, whether it's height restri- restrictions in your example, Shell. But it does come back to how valuable is this asset and how many people want it? It's the supply versus demand. If it's got a smell to it because it it hasn't been approved or there's part of it it hasn't been approved, but 20 people want it, then the approved dwelling means not a lot, to be honest. Um, understanding what council regulations are and how nice they are to deal with. So, And it may be too late for Joel, but just ringing up council and saying, look, I've just realised that I've got a deck here that's probably not approved. Mm. What's the process to go through to get this approved, right? Or I'm asking for a friend. What would My you? My neighbour's deck is not approved, <laughs> and right. I need to know yeah, what to do. Yeah, because Joel could say, if the market wasn't hot, all right, condition of sale, it will sell if he gets the deck approved. Yes. Yeah. Now, does that increase the value of the property? No, I don't think it would, Mm. but it definitely won't decrease it. Or or you mentioned before, Glenn, about negotiation tactics if someone just finds out that it's not approved and he didn't tell them. Yeah. Mm. So, look, I I think you've always got to do the right thing. That's what it comes back to. That's a rule in life. You know, look after people, do the right thing. Does that mean you'll get done goodbye or whatever you say? (laughs) No, but you know what? What comes around usually goes around and I don't know if it will be a showstopper because, you know, you're probably caught up on it, Joel, because you built the deck. But what if it was with the house when you bought it? Like it's just yes. a, it's a deck. It is what it is. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not approved, whatever. I wouldn't be getting too concerned about it. No. Just disclose it and the cards will fall where they may. Mm. All right. You're listening to My Millennial Daily. We'll see you next week. Do you feel like you're working too hard and not being rewarded or incentivized for it? Do you feel like your business is taking advantage of you? Well, this episode is for you. We're going to dig into a listener question about exactly this. I'm Shelley Johnson and you're listening to My Millennial Daily. Okay, John, we had a listener question submitted on the My Millennial Money Facebook community. Do you want to hit us with it? Yes. So it's from Nathan. How do you know when a business has taken advantage of you in terms of salary and workload? I work in a job where my role and responsibilities increase on a weekly basis, but increase in remuneration is always taboo. Yeah, this is a really good question. It's interesting to me when things are considered taboo in an organization. So you know those things that are like, that's off limits. We don't talk about that here. It's a little bit of a red flag to me, but not uncommon. So that's an aside, but I want to get into this question. The first thing I'd encourage Nathan to do is to look at his job description. So if you have a job description, go back and have a look at it. And I want you to assess are the things that they're asking you to do, those extra things that you feel like are increasing every week, are they still within the realms of your job description? Because if they are, chances are they're not asking you to do extra. Your duties are just changing week on week. So I want us to do a bit of that sense check of is this unreasonable or is this just the changing nature of what's required in my job. Yeah, and that's really interesting, Shell, uh, because you, you may have, they may be in your roles and responsibilities but not given to you when you first started the job. 
Um, and it's just they've they've crept in because of the business nature and it's and it's changing and evolving. But they were always there to begin with. We just had them in our contract, but just hadn't had to do it on a daily basis. Is that fair? Exactly. That's a really good point as well because often when we start in a role, we start on a scaled back version. So we might get thirty percent of the role to start with, and over time, as we develop trust, as we develop knowledge, then the business give us more and more the actual role to do. So I think what you're saying is spot on, John. It's that we're simply doing more of what we've been employed to do. Yeah, yeah. And I, when I see something like this, I think as a business owner myself, I think, wow, I've got to have a, a check in the mirror to say, am I actually giving my staff extra responsibilities for what they're not getting paid for? Or, or we don't ever want to be in a situation where we're not free or confident enough to discuss this with the business owner or the boss. I think that's why I said that thing about taboo topics being a bit of a red flag for me because that typically points to a cultural problem. Mm. So if there's a culture problem around, well, you're not allowed to talk about pay here because you're seen as greedy. Well, that's, I don't think that's a reasonable thing to expect of employees. I think that employees should absolutely be able to talk about their pay freely and talk about that with their boss now, obviously, you want to talk about it in an appropriate way. You don't want to come across as continually slamming your boss about, well, this one task is going to cost you X amount yeah. of dollars more because, you know, jobs change and evolve over time. We need to be aware of that. The main point here is that we should be able to feel free to have these conversations. So for Nathan, what I want him to do is to look at, okay, well, if the work that they're getting me to do is beyond my job description and if it's not just me over time stepping into more of what the role is required to do, well, then I need to start to book in a conversation with my boss and sit down with them and say, hey, I've noticed that each week I seem to be taking more, more and more duties. That means that I'm having to work X amount of hours extra a week because I can't fit it into my day-to-day job. And that means that I'm spread thin, I'm not not focusing on all of the parts that historically I've been able to focus on. So can we talk about the role and can we also talk about a pay review as part of that because I feel like my role is expanding but maybe I'm not being remunerated for that. Yeah, that's great. You've got to nip it in the bud and have that conversation, don't you? Would, would you always check your, I suppose, your agreement or your contract as, as the first part of that before the meeting or like because they're, they're obviously going to refer to it as the business owner or the, or, the, or the boss, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's doing those sense checks. So it's your job description. It might be your contract. If It might be looking at, well, what have I done in the past versus what am I doing now? Mm. And just building some of that data set to be able to inform that conversation. The big thing for me when I'm having these conversations with employees is that I want them to raise it in a way that makes it amicable. So it's not like us versus them or me versus you as the boss. It's, hey, this is what's happening are you aware that my role is expanding? Because often leaders don't know how many things they're pushing onto their team. They're not maybe aware they're moving at a really fast pace. Yeah. And once you raise it with them, they're like, oh, yeah, crap, I didn't realise that you were doing all of that extra stuff. I wasn't aware of that. Let's chat through how we can shuffle the role or how we can adjust the scope of what you're working on to make sure that it's reasonable. Yeah, and I think coming again from a business owner's perspective, well, for me personally, I, I would want to the feeling that they would be comfortable to come and speak to me, number one. But also before that happens, I, I like to think that I'm paying them well anyway for the work that they're doing and they're always getting uh, rewarded and encouraged for, for, for the work that they're putting out. But yeah, what are, what are some other tips that I suppose if you're a business owner, on the other side of the fence, what, what, what would they be doing? So if you're a leader or a business owner, we need to be having regular conversations about people's job and pay. It just needs to be a natural rhythm. What I think is sad for employees, if they have to bring this stuff up with you, you've missed something along the way, I think. And that might be blunt, but if your employees aren't having at least once a year a discussion about reviewing their role and their pay then I think we're missing a step. So we need to schedule these things in. I often 
when I employ people, John, I say to them, hey, I want you to know up front the expectations. We are going to have a discussion about pay and your role every six months. So it's just out there on the table. That doesn't mean you're getting a pay rise every six months. That just means that we're going to talk about it. Mm. So then they don't have to come to me and ask me to review their pay because they know that I'm going to do that anyway. And so that builds the clarity and it builds that trust. And I think that helps an employee feel like that topic is not taboo because it's just scheduled in. That's awesome um, to have that up front. And, and if you're a business owner that hasn't set that expectation, then you, you could probably implement that from today after listening to this, right? Exactly. You could just sit down with your staff and go, hey, I just want to let you know every six months or once a year after the financial year's over, we sit down, we have a conversation about how the business is performing, how you're performing in your role, and if there's any pay reviews. Yeah, because money is only one portion of the of the conversation as well, isn't it? It's like, okay, uh, how many hours are we doing? The conditions, is it a four-day work week? Are we are we have to be in the office by eight o'clock or can we work from home? Like that, that all makes up that real you know, user experience as an employee. Totally. The employee experience is made up of all of those things. It's not just money. And so we need to have those conversations with our team to go, hey, look, well, here's all these other benefits. The big thing and the essence of this for Nathan is have a conversation with your boss about it. Be open and try to shift that sense of taboo. So if it feels like an off-limits conversation, I want you to be brave and step into it and do it in a kind way, but be bold. Go there, have the conversation. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Hey, John, always a pleasure hanging out with you. And thanks for hanging out. You're listening to My Millennial Daily. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. All right. We're not really doing a community segment of the week because we're kind of doing a bit different in this episode with all these uh, unheard questions being answered. It's a lot of fun with Shell and John just shooting the breeze and talking about different questions. Hope you've enjoyed it. But just at the middle of all our episodes on Tuesdays, we do housekeeping. The last few weeks, I'm just kind of pretending that there are people who are new to the podcast because there are new people to the podcast. They haven't been like you, you over there. Yeah, that's right. You listening since 2020 or you in the corner. Stand up. Yeah, you. You've been listening since 21. They're not like you. So we need to just welcome people and just show them what this show's all about. So housekeeping for this week, the Glenn James Spending Plan, it is now officially free. There's no cost to do my spending plan. Done. There, I said it. Just Google Glenn James Spending Plan. It's a value add that we wanted to add back to the community it didn't make a huge amount of revenue in proportion to our total business revenue. So I just made the judgment call. Let's just gift it. It's a lot of hard times happening out there at this moment. So I'll help where I can. But if you want to help us back and get some value added, we do have the My Money Journal. And that's really cool. Got heaps of them printed. If you want to get your thoughts out of your head onto paper, it's a great gift for people. If you want to go, all right, I need to get my life sorted out. I need to get it in order. The My Money Journal, it's awesome. Put pen to paper, get your fears out into the open, get your aspirations out into the open. The My Money Journal, it's a banger. It's really great quality. The team has really put some effort behind that. And finally, randomly, I needed some new tote bags uh, because when I go to the supermarket, I forgot my tote bag because I didn't have any. So we ordered some My Millennial Money ones. And I said to Jess, hey, do you want to just order 100 and we'll just sell maybe 90 or so by the time I keep three for my boot and give the team some. So if you want to buy a limited edition tote bag or three, uh, you can also go to mymillennial.money website. There might be a link in the show note. Um, But yeah, very limited edition. uh, And they're good quality tote bags. So there we have it. That's the housekeeping all done. We'll see you soon.
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast code acast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. One of the reasons that we did start the My Millennial Career podcast and Shell and I wrote the book Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money was there are so many more career questions now in the My Millennial Money community than ever before. Careers is the new frontier for millennial and Gen Z. You are no longer working in a job for life. It is a fact. Career is your biggest investment and today we're going to talk about recruiting, particularly in government and large corporates. Do you want to read this one, John? Jellini says, "Hello all. Career question. We know how long the government recruitment process is, etc., but I've been out of the game for so long, so I'm not sure if that's changed lately. I've submitted my application on the 6th of March and then got shortlisted on the 21st of March. Received an email to do an online test, which I did, and I haven't heard anything back. Should I just wait?" Should I contact the hiring manager? I just want to know if I got into the interview stage. Any advice is welcome. Well, the advice is coming from none other than Shell Johnson from My <laughs> Millennial Career. I love that handball. Thank you, sir. Yes, this is a good question. Government processes, actually, recruitment processes in general, take ages. They're so slow. Yeah, and because here, like, because it's well after March, you know, it's. With, by the time someone listens to this, it, it really doesn't matter. But you know, it's realistically only a three-week period. And, yeah. And I guess my question, sorry to cut you off, was in the corporate world, you said they take a long time. Can you tell us just some, you know, macro view, thirty thousand feet? Like, what's a long time in corporate and what's a short time? Okay, so I remember back when I was in internal HR in a uh, decent-sized organisation, it would on average take two months. <laughs> wow. But could be longer, right? So it was between 42 to 90 days on average was the recruitment timeline. It's, it's shortened heaps since then. That was about five years ago. It's shortened a lot since then, but it's still long. And I would imagine in government, you know, if I'm wrong, let me know on LinkedIn, <laughs> but I would still imagine it's a two-month process. So from when you advertise, let's say we advertise on the 1st of April, The advertisement is up for a month. Then we review those applications. That takes two weeks. Then we shortlist. That takes a couple of days. Then we interview on video interview or whatever it is that they do. So it's this huge rigmarole and an awful process, right? It goes for so long. Recruiters are better at streamlining this right down to a fine art. They're amazing. But what I'm saying is, be patient because different organisations have different timelines. And I think for Jelani, what we want to do is two things. We want to a be patient and know, okay, it's a process. They've probably got all this administrative stuff in the background that they're doing. And then b, it's okay to reach out to the hiring manager, and it's actually good to let them know you're still interested. So what I would be doing is emailing, saying, "Hey, look, just checking in. I'm still interested in the role. Is there anything you're you're needing from me? Is there anything I can do?" In the interim, like so, just connect, just show interest because I think recruiters want to know that you're still interested, and they're conscious because it's such a tight talent market at the moment. They're often thinking we need to move really quick because we're going to lose good people along the way. So just expressing that you're still interested in the process is really good, and, and it's just a good way to connect. Mm. Would you say the the size of the organisation? Is a, a differing factor in the timeframes. Like you mentioned, one month for advertising, which should be pretty standard. But then that second month goes by, and then the shortlisting. And is it does that vary upon organisation? Do you think? 
Totally. It's totally dependent on the organisation. Some people move super quick and they're, what they are doing is they've put the ad up and they're actually re- recruiting and interviewing while the ad is still live and open. And other organisations say the ad's open for a month and we don't look at anyone until it closes. So it's very dependent on the business. I think the big thing is what I want Jelini to be doing and anyone who's in a similar boat you need to be active while this is happening. So you're waiting and maybe this is the job you really want, but I also want you to be out there on LinkedIn, still applying for other jobs in the meantime, because these processes can take time. If you're holding out for two months, waiting and hoping that this job comes through and then you don't get it, you've, you've slowed down or missed out on other opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I'd probably say is as soon as you put an application in, at the earliest convenience, whether you can write an email or give them a call, I know probably going to be, as Ralph Williams would say, impossible to call someone, but or if you get your first interview, you just need to know and ask them, hey, what's the timelines here in a perfect world? Just so I'm aware. Totally. Yeah, I was just looking on Trade, and it says the process takes between four and eight weeks for recruitment. So I think... Mm. that gives you a good indicator of, mm. you know, the timeline that you're working with. Okay. So the biggest tip you've got, Shell, for, for Jalini is don't put all your chickens in one egg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, <laughs> we've, we've loved the um, bird analogies over recent episodes. Yes, be active. Yeah. And I, I, this would be my other recommendation to anyone who's in recruitment processes right now. Get on LinkedIn, share content, be visible share posts that you like, share things that relate to your industry, start to build your personal brand because recruiters look at that and they think, oh, they're doing something really cool over there. What's going on? They're very active. And the more active you are, the more likely you are to be sought after. squeaky wheel. Absolutely. Shell, on the My Millennial Career podcast, and it's also on Spotify if you want to jump on and have a listen and scroll back through the episodes, you'll see an episode that Shell did about standing out uh, with a lady called Maz Speaks. Shell, can you just talk to us about the TLDR of that? Because I listened to that episode and it was so amazing. And I even changed my LinkedIn after listening to that. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, Maz is amazing. Maz talked about this idea of how do you be interesting? Mm. How do you make yourself memorable? Because often what happens in recruitment processes is everyone looks the same on a piece of paper. Everyone's experience looks identical to the next person. So what I want for you is to stand out and your LinkedIn is a really good tool for that. Often people's LinkedIn all sounds the same. I'm a passionate accountant who is good with numbers. (laughs) (laughs) And what we want is how do you stand out? So you could be, I'm an accountant on a mission to transform your business problems. Do you know what I changed my thing to? What? I turn spenders into savers. I love that. Because that's what I do. Like, I'm not your financial guru. Like, if I'm your guru, you got big trouble. But I can encourage you to stop spending money, get a system in place, get out of debt and get on your path to financial freedom. Mm -hmm. I'm better at fixing and, you know, doing the fixer-upper. Not good at household maintenance. But if you give me a knockdown rebuild, I'll help you clear it, get the foundations built. So then you can go and do your architectural stuff for the second story. The point there is you've had to go away and think, how do I make what I do memorable? Mm. So I want you, if you're listening right now, you're, you're looking for work, listen to that episode on My Millennial Career with Maz Speaks, then update your LinkedIn profile, work out what your mission is. Mm. And John, how's your LinkedIn going? Yeah, it needs a bit of shell to it, I think. I might just reach out to Maz or Shell. Yeah, mm. you do that. We will help you. But, you know, for Jelini, in finishing up, like in this low unemployment environment, you're going to have to be active. You're going to have to kiss a lot of frogs. I want you to apply for as much as possible. Now, in finishing, we've recently recruited two more people at My Millennial Money here. And, you know, one of the roles I... Well, actually three people. One of them I went direct myself to seek and thank you to everyone who applied for that. To be honest, and I guess corporate is probably different, but if you didn't do a cover letter, I'm not even looking at your resume. Like I actually don't care. Like if you don't have the time to do a cover letter, do it bespoke, not write de-hiring manager or any of that crap, or you might actually do that, but I don't know. Like Research the business. I think what you're saying is, 
make it custom to the business you're applying for. And I basically had three interviews with people. Basically two of them, they had killer cover letters. How long did the recruitment process take you? Yeah, well, we, I I thought, look, I'm going to put it up for a month. Okay, within the first two weeks, I think I got 40 applications, shortlisted a few, ended up interviewing three. But by the end of it, I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I took the ad down, managed to actually, the right person that I hired for the role, they approached me because they saw they were already connected to me and they had the perfect experience. I didn't end up recruiting, quote unquote, through that way. But yeah, I don't know. It was I tough. just want to say one thing on that mm. to close. You close the job ad early. Yeah. So when you see that job ad listed and it says it closes on the 30th of June, mm. don't wait for that date because yes. the, the manager might get an influx of 40 people and they go, cool, I'm going to close it now. I've got the right person. Jump in and take action quickly. You've just got to kiss a lot of frogs, get out there, set clear expectations, stand out and uh, yeah, go get them. Now we've spoken before about the new versus old when we're an investor, but what if we've got a new housing development within an existing estate? Okay, Johnny. Amy Abella asked the question on the My Millennial Money Facebook community. What's your experience of how new housing developments affect existing dwelling values, particularly if your block is twice the size or more than the new lots? It's a house that's about 10 years old, if that matters. Whoa, Amy, show me the money. (laughs) Because generally what happens, Shell, is in new housing developments, developers want to chop up the land as small as they can that's practical and and that council approves. Now, we know there's a housing shortage uh, around the country as we speak. So generally, councils are encouraging these types of developments. And as a result, the more houses we can get in there, the more households we can house and everyone wins. Now, Amy's in a position where and, and we found this in a, in a town we were investing in in Victoria last year where we found a new housing development in this town, in this existing suburb, and the existing suburb been there 50, 100 years, don't know how long, but it's all existing. 50, right? 100, direct quote. 50, 50 to 100. <laughs> oh, yeah, we said 50, 100. <laughs> 50, 100 yeah, <laughs> good England. Um, so these new lots were like 350 to 400 square metres in size. Now, I'll take Amy's example and say, well, she might have a 1,000 square metre block. So what does that do to her land? Now, we don't need to be a rocket scientist to realise that her land value has just gone up because they've just carved off these 350 to 400 square metre lots and they've put a premium on them because there's only a certain amount left in that existing suburb because they're what's called infill sites, meaning that there might be 30 to 40 lots infill in these suburbs, right? Does that make sense? So we're in these suburbs as opposed to out creating a brand new suburb with a brand new name, right? So when we've got that happening, those existing houses, generally speaking, their land will increase in value anyway because land goes up, building value goes down. But having a new development in there, I think is a positive thing. But, and the big but shell, is the maybe a little bit of short-term pain. And that short-term pain is we've got diggers, we've got nail guns, we've got trades, we've got trucks, we've got all this action happening potentially right on our backyard. So we need to put up with that for the, for the initial period uh, until all of that is out of the ground and the houses are built and then that's when we'll start to take advantage of it from a financial point of view. So at what point does Amy go and get her property revalued? Yeah, so Amy, if this is happening to you right now, sit tight, go through that short-term pain, even if it, it may not even be a pain, but if it is, then sit tight and then see it through to completion. And then furthermore, see it through until a few of these houses are actually sold. And that's when you start to see the upside to say, well, okay, this house on a 400 square metre lot sold for 600,000. My house is on 1,000 square metres of land, even though it's an older home, 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old. Uh, 
it's going to be compared against that new housing value that's just been sold. So that's when it's time to go and get evaluation done and potentially extract some equity. So, Shell, we spoke about the short-term pain that maybe Amy will go through in the first couple of years, get that development sorted and houses have been built, etc. The improvements that are happening in the area also can't be quantified. Now, what I mean by that is I would be checking on this uh, development's website and seeing what is their master plan, what new roads are being built, potentially what new shops are going in, potentially what new parks and gardens are going in. So if you can picture an existing suburb somewhere around the country and you've been living there for 20 years and all of a sudden land is cleared and a new park goes in, what does that do for your family? Yeah, what does it do for my kids? They'd be stoked. (laughs) Absolutely stoked. You see a new road that's gone in uh, with an extra laneway because it's a bit busier now, right? That's a positive thing for the area. Now, it doesn't mean there's 200 apartments going up right next to your door. It's just simply uh, in the example of this, it's housing development. So they're all good three, four-bedroom houses in, in this example for Amy. So Generally, it's a positive thing that's that's coming in. But the first thing we need to do is check that master plan and see what the development's uh, bringing, uh, how many lots it's bringing to the to the table, and what's the completion date expected for that. I'm interested, John, as well, of when it is a bad thing. So, like, I'm on a I'm in an area where we have all these rural properties just down below, kind of where my house is, and. There's been interest in developing those, but obviously people don't don't want to develop their beautiful, amazing properties. Mm. And we've had a lot of traffic coming through where everyone's starting to get grumpy about that. Yeah. And and so what do you do in the in the snow where it actually isn't in favor of the community? Yeah. Like because for us, we wouldn't want those areas to be developed. No, that's actually referred to as nimbyism, Shell. Not <laughs> in my backyard. <laughs> Now, nimbyism is quite common in city areas where, again, generations have have grown up here and been passed on and passed on. A house have never sold. There's never any land available. And all of a sudden, someone wants to come in and develop four or five lots. And, and the whole suburb just is up in arms, right? And sometimes in that case, the suburb wins. There's, there's enough noise going on for, for, their, for council to say, look, we're not going to allow this because we don't want to upset the, the streetscape, the feel of the neighbourhood, the feel of the suburb, et cetera. So it's going another level to see what the council is actually after. What's their long-term vision? Is it to build more property in these areas or is it just to Keep that, keep the locals happy, and uh, and and increase their rates. The annoying locals, <laughs> and it's a real thing. And and before we're buying, we need to th- uh, factor in these things because when we buy, we could hold this property for thirty years, and we can't vision what it's going to look like in thirty years, and can be totally regentrified. And but there's massive opportunity when we can have that feel. So that rounds that out, Amy. Awesome question. Good luck with all of that. But I think it's a win-win for for everyone involved there. If you like what you're listening to, give us a five-star rating. And until next time, I'm John Pigeon, and you've been listening to My Millennial Daily. Mortgage structures and properties it's a big deal. Like you don't buy properties every single week. You don't buy investment properties every single week. But what if you've got an investment property and a home that you live in and they've both got offset accounts? What ones do we use? Okay. We have a question from Lucy from the My Millennial Money Facebook community. And she has asked, is it beneficial to have an offset account for an investment property home loan? There are still service fees for the offset, $10 a month, still paying off principal place of residence without offset. Do you normally find the benefit of having an offset with an investment property? John, do you want to maybe explain just conceptually what an offset account is with a mortgage? Yeah. So basically, an offset account is a separate account that sits next to your home loan, whether it be investment or owner-occupied loan. And every dollar that you have sitting in there is offsetting the interest that you have on that particular loan that it's attached to. So if you've got, for example, a $400,000 loan and you've got $50,000 sitting in the offset, then 
you're only paying interest on 350 because the 50,000 is sitting in the offset account. That 50,000 can come and go as you please. So you can take it out, it's fluid, you can use it how you need to, but um, interest is calculated daily. So every day that it sits in there, it's saving you interest. And in the event of a principal and interest loan, what you're doing is you, you'll have the same mortgage repayments, but you'll be paying more off the principal because you're paying less interest for that particular day uh, or month or year or however long you've got that money in there. Now, the thing is with the offset account, you can have a Visa debit or MasterCard debit linked to that account. Like it's just a normal transactional bank account. Yes. But in the background, it's not interest bearing and most transactional accounts aren't anyway, mm. uh, but it will offset the interest charged on the property or the mortgage. Yes. And as Lucy's alluded to, most banks will charge you a fee to have that offset account. So in her case, $10 a month to have that offset account running. And someone could probably do... (laughs) 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 Nay. Leave it in. (laughs) Someone could probably do the maths because I thought loosely speaking... A lot of these offset accounts, they might charge $10 a month. They might be a pro pack of $500 a year or something like that. It might get to a tipping point where if you don't have at least $40,000 or $50,000 to offset, it's not worth paying the extra amount in fees. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't know what that tipping point is because it varies based on what the interest rate That's is right. and whatever else but and, and the fees you're paying. But I think also mentally people might like to have it there because they feel as though they're having a win. They're Mm. putting extra money in there than they normally would. Um, You've got to tell yourself a good story. So I think generally speaking, if you've got an owner-occupier loan, you would have an offset account if you're saving money each month. So what if you've got an investment property like Lucy has asked? Mm. They've got two mortgages, two properties, for example. What do we do with the offset account that's sitting against the mortgage of the investment property? Yeah. So personally, I've never had an offset account on my investment properties. I've just always focused on paying down our owner-occupied debt because uh, I've spoken about it before, but I consider owner-occupied debt is bad debt and investment loan debt as good debt. So I want to pay down that bad debt as soon as possible. If I've got $10,000 sitting in an offset account against good debt, I'd rather take that and put it against the the bad debt, which is my owner-occupier. So in Lucy's example, I would not pay the $10 a month to have that offset account in the investment property. So you've got an offset against your principal place of residence, Mm -hmm. but you don't have an offset against your investments? No. So Glenn, you've got some investments. How have you done it with your own property? Yeah, so I've actually got an investment property that the mortgage on that property has an offset account. So it was just part of the product. And interestingly enough, I actually use the offset account in my investment property. Right. So do they charge you extra for that offset? No. It was part of the package. It was part of the package. Cool. So I didn't get a choice. However, remember I used to live in a property that I owned, so owner-occupied. When I was living in my former house, my emergency fund sat in an offset account on my principal place of residence. Okay. Because as you said, John, I want non-deductible debt to be decreasing as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. Didn't use the offset account on the investment property. Fast forward a year, I'm now rent vesting. So I rent here and I've got investment properties. Now, what I've done was I'm like, okay, well, I've got my emergency fund and we'll make a number up for giggles. giggles. We'll call it $50,000. What I did was I'm like, okay, well... I need to park my emergency fund somewhere. All mortgages for the properties have offset accounts, just part of the products. Yep. Now, what I've done, I've now moved that quote-unquote $50,000 to the investment property that has the highest interest rate. Yes. So, yes, in my instance, I've used offset accounts on investment properties, but if I was to buy a home again, I'd be offsetting my principal place of residence. Yeah. And and this episode could go for an hour literally talking about this. And I think for rent vesters, which is essentially what you're doing now, mm. there's no bad debt in your life, is there? So do we want to pay down loans on our investment properties? There's an argument to say yes. There's also an argument to say, well, let's stay cash heavy, keep it in offsets against that to then one day buy our own rock. Yeah. Because for example, if I had $50,000 as an emergency fund, 
there's no point me having it in a standalone savings account over here getting 3.5% no. where I can have it offsetting maybe an investment property debt of 5.5%. Yes. So horses for courses. Okay. It sounds like strategy is important before you buy any property. Yeah. And I think, you know, John, you mentioned it before when I said um, you've just got to line your chickens up and gooses and all that stuff up, all your eggs or whatever the roosters things are. <laughs> what am I saying? You've got to line ducks. your ducks up. Yeah. The ducks in, ducks, a ducks in a row. I was <laughs> like equine or no, avian, avian. avian. Is that what that is? No, birds? sorry, birds, whatever. <laughs> Bird analogy. I'm jet lagged, guys. Back Bird, off. Birds sitting in an aviary. Yeah, duck eggs. Anyway. <laughs> They're duck eggs. That's so, when you make a duck in cricket. For example, <laughs> if you know that in the short term, I do not have $50,000 to put in an offset against this property. So it's quote unquote, not worth having an offset account, but longer game, it might be worth paying that little bit more to have the flexibility in your strategy. So my property strategy, every property that I own, investment properties, home that I lived in had offset accounts. And for me, that was the most flexible thing that I could do. So talk to us about strategy in these finishing moments. Yeah. So just quickly, a lot of investment loans won't come with offset accounts. So unless there may be principal and interest. Um, and mine are. Okay. So that's, yeah, there's a better chance for offset accounts for that. Um, so just take the, that into account when you're, when you're ringing the broker today or tomorrow. The other part is this, the long-term game and knowing what your next play will be like a chessboard. What's, what are we going to do now, but what are we going to do in the step after that is really critical. So if it's an investment property now, are we going to turn that into an owner-occupier home in five years' time or are we going to do the reverse? Do we buy owner-oc now with the view to upgrade our owner-oc and turn this initial property into an investment. If that's the case, maybe we think about not paying down that debt as much to save our pennies for that future owner or home. Well, there you go, everyone. If you want to learn more about investing in property and all this good stuff, you can listen to the My Millennial Property Podcast that's hosted by John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. It's here on Spotify. My name's Glenn James. This is Shell and John. Thanks for listening today. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.